Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. For many of us, when we were children, thinking about the past drew on our senses. We imagined what the Tudor court would look like. Or perhaps we imagined the taste of meats roasted on a spit. We pondered what early modern clothes felt like, be those belonging to the rich or the poor, where the beds were comfortable. We imagined what towns smelled like and even the people. We thought about the chatter, the music, the sound of a sword being sheathed. Now, of course, there are many people who continue to remember those things. I certainly forgot promptly about the physical, visceral reality of the past for many years and had to be jolted back into it. I think that such a visceral encounter with the past isn't something that should be reserved for our childhood. I think it's incredibly exciting that one of the newest areas to develop in social history in recent times is to recover people's sensory experiences. Twenty-odd years ago, when today's guest, Dr Emily Cockaine, was completing her PhD study into sounds and noise in early modern England, she decided to develop it into a book called Hubbub, Filth, Noise and Stench in England, 1600 to 1770, which is a remarkable feat of investigation into the offences that people experienced to each of their five senses. Today, as Associate Professor in Early Modern History at the University of East Anglia, Dr Cocaine continues to examine interpersonal relationships, material culture, nuisances and domestic and street environments in England. She's written Cheek by Jow, A History of Neighbours, which came out in 2012, Rummage, A History of Things We Have Reused, Recycled and Refused to Let Go in 2020, both of which to much critical acclaim. And I am delighted to welcome her today to discuss filth, noise and stench in early modern England after a second edition of Hubbub was published last year with a new afterword. Dr Cockade, thank you so much for being willing to talk to me and join me on Not Just the Tudors. I think your book is an absolute triumph. I mean, it's one of many books, but the one we're going to be talking about today, which is called Hubbub. And I loved it. And so I'm very excited to have a chat with you about it. Thank you. You bill your book as not for the squeamish, examining what you call offences to each of the five senses. So I feel like I must begin by asking what inspired your research in this area. Oh, blimey. Well, quite a lot of things came together all at the same time. I'd written a PhD that focused on sounds. In that, I looked at noises, and I I kind of liked the fact that when you get a negative thing to look at, the sources are so much more fulsome and naughty and detailed and dirty and gritty, and also involved what I call my nobodies. So they're more likely to include the stories of little people who don't usually appear in the record. So I'd written that, but when you write a PhD, you kind of get a bit sick of the research, so... I didn't really want to take it any further into a publication. I wanted to develop from it. And so I thought, well, my favourite chapter in the PhD was about noise. So I'll look at other sensory upsets. 
And at the same time, I had a baby and she had been diagnosed with a very serious milk allergy. So it made me think about how the body starts tolerating things. Because my doctor said to me, the one thing you need to do to help your daughter is keep your house really dirty because you'll get used to all sorts of pathogens and diseases. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. That's one yeah. thing that I can follow the advice Fantastic of. Fantastic advice. <laughs> yeah, quite. And it worked. So eventually her allergies did resolve themselves. But it made me think about bodies in the world, in the past. And, you know, being a historian, it's really difficult, isn't it, to not just always think about a personal situation and historicise it. So... That came at the same time as thinking, well, I want to sort of draw the the ideas from the thesis out more broadly. And then uh, sort of you get to the point where you have to revisit the Mr. Men books when you have children and you haven't read them for a while. And I thought, I want a book that's like Mr. Mouldy, Mr. Noisy, Mr. Gloomy, Mr. Dirty, Mr. Busy, Mr. Ugly, Mr. Itchy, but for adults. So it all came together as this sort of reluctance to carry on doing what I was doing with the PhD. And I want to sort of look at how the senses develop and intertwine and pick up with the environment. And all of those things came at the same time. So hence Hubbub came out of all of that. And indeed, it is organised into chapters called things like mouldy and itchy and busy and ugly. What sort of evidence were you drawing on to talk to these type of topics? I mean, what I saw it as is no evidence is not worth looking at. So it was a source immersion thing. Many historians work systematically through a particular type of source. And I thought if I did that, it's going to take me absolutely forever. So I started with diaries and travel accounts, quickly jettisoned autobiographies because people who write autobiographies, I would say they don't seem to lie in a bed or wear shoes. They don't describe the everyday in any way. So diaries, travel accounts were the key sources, but then literally everything, civic records, court records, parliamentary papers, images, plans of buildings, actual buildings. I just thought nothing was outside my remit. But that meant I had to do a quite exhausting sort of source immersion to kind of put myself in the past through the sources um, you know, it's really good fun, though. It's sort of nice to sort of explore lots of different types of sources. And you highlight that sensory history is a very new area of social history. And I understand that you took your inspiration in part from anthropologists and literary scholars. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. So um, Stephen Feld was the key anthropologist that I used as a sort of direction. He wrote this really great book about the sounds that the Cahooley people in Papua New Guinea pick up on in order to help their hunting, their fishing, their sort of everyday lives. But he'd written this book and he'd written it and then he gave it to somebody from the Cahooley tribe. And they basically said, You've misunderstood what we're doing. You've completely overinterpreted and you've looked at the symbolic and you haven't looked at the practical. And they kind of said, we were pulling your leg. We were making fun of you because we thought you were this academic who we could sort of have a bit of fun with. But when we listen to sounds, we do it to see which way the water is running. And we, when we listen to birds, we think about where they're moving through the forest. It's all practical. And so I thought, well, how do I put that into a study of the past? How can I think about how people practically did things in order to navigate their way through the world, through the streets, through their houses. 
And so that was the sort of direction I started with and then read quite a lot about modern senses and how they work and how they interact with each other and just how we bring in details about our experiences, but we entwine our sensory reactions as we do it. So lots of historians before have sort of focused on one sense at a time and afterwards often focus on one sense at a time. But I wanted to think about how the senses interact and intertwine together. That's really interesting. There's a lot in here that we could talk about, but we're not going to be able to cover every sensory experience you've painstakingly examined. But I do hope we can draw on some. And I was thinking we'll focus on noise and we'll do something about stench and we'll do something about filth. And I'm going to start with the latter because I experienced many shudders of horror reading the chapter called Itchy. You've explained that people's skin was irritated by disease and infestations and chafed by coarse fabric and linens and the effects of weather. So I wonder if you could make some of my listeners shudder as well by outlining (laughs) some of these itches. Yeah, so um, wig wearing, I thought, was the one that caught my attention the most because the diarists always describe how it gets so hot and itchy wearing wigs all the time. And then they have this dilemma, do they shave their hair off and just go full on wig and do that? And often when they decided to do that, their life was a bit easier because they shaved off hair that would have caught the attention of lice. So they had that issue gone. But then they brought a new issue in with the wig itself because they would get all lank and dirty They would need cleaning. They need hair powder putting on them. And so then you get stories of sort of hair powder going everywhere and into people's eyes, etc. as well. And so wig wearing was the experience of the past I hadn't really ever thought about. And quite a lot of the diarists bemoan their experiences with wig wearing. And I look at various diarists in the work, so Samuel Pepys, for example, and his experiences with wig wearing. And so I thought about the whole body. So how can the whole body be itched by things? All sorts of things like eyebrow dandruff that I'd never even thought about before. So people describing like physical problems, describing houses filled with insects that might attack them. But the thing I suppose I went into it assuming was that the sort of people right down at the bottom of society would have been most affected by the itchy sort of nasty contaminants and the nasty fabrics. And then I was always finding that it was the richer people who were sort of feeling the effects of needing to be on show more. And I didn't get the impression that there was a dramatically different experience of a sensory skin experience. It's Everybody seemed to be affected by different things in different ways. And it was kind of determined by their sort of standing in society. But you know, poorer people wouldn't be wearing wigs. They didn't have to deal with that sort of thing. And in the conclusion, I draw it together and say that the main conclusion for Hubbub. And so I think that actually the time that we'd most notice the differences would be in the rain, when people who are richer have more ability to wear galoshes and use umbrellas and use protective clothing against the rain. But that was the key time that you'd tell any sort of status differences, when bodies got wet and dirty and itchy. When it came to filth and itchiness, did people have remedies to alleviate their discomfort opposed to beyond cut off all their hair? 
Oh, yeah, they brushed quite often. So the use of brushing is something that I think we still don't really get a sense of, but there was quite a lot of skin brushing. I don't get the impression there was a huge amount of wet washing and there wasn't a massive amount of water immersion unless people lived near clean lakes and things like that. So you get, I think, Stephen Montiage, who was an accountant for the South Sea Company, describes occasionally in his diary how he washes his feet And it's something he feels he needs to put in his diary. So it felt like something that was a little bit ritualistic and irregular. So it appeared in his diary. But to be honest, we're not sure how clean people kept themselves because we don't commonly write that sort of thing in our own diaries. It's so everyday and so normal that people don't really describe it. So it's quite easy to assume that people were absolutely minging all the time. And I don't think they were. I think people made as best an effort they could with the resources they had to keep as clean as they could. Okay, because I think this is an important question. I feel like no one who thinks about the past for much, for any length of time really, can not wonder, did people smell? Did people in the early modern period smell? Would they have considered each other smelly? They do talk about other people being smelly. Now, particularly in really crowded experiences, like being on a stagecoach or something like that. So when they're in a a tight space with people, but you know, we do that too. You know, you notice it on the underground, for example, other people's odours. Now, it kind of depends on your tolerability of smell and what you sort of find acceptable. So it would be very hard for us to get a sense of what it would be like to go back in the past and be immersed in this. I think our sense of acceptable human smells is significantly different to the people who lived in the past. So I think we would notice going back in time, a different smell. So a different sense of smell acceptability. But I hesitate to say I think everybody would have gone around really smelly all the time. There was a huge amount of effort to wash regularly, wash linens in particular. And this focus in linens being the thing that would draw out the smell and so they could be cleaned. Now, there will be people with absolutely no resources to clean and no spare clothes. So there is the potential that a lot of people would have no other opportunity to keep clean. So they might have smelt more than other people. And you get descriptions of things like cockfights, taverns, theatres, where people are smelling other people's bodies. But again, it's easy to overemphasise those sort of extreme moments. So if not people, at least the streets do seem to have been pretty smelly. You describe dunghills that would have lulled and leaked and stank. I suppose it's a little stomach churning, but could you tell us what a dunghill was, uh, where we would find them, and what was supposed to happen to them? Oh, yeah. Well, so dunghills are basically an accumulation of all the grot that people pushed out of their houses. So cinders from the fire, I think that would have been a huge part of it. Now, what we're talking about is urban dunghills, so they're going to be quite different to rural dunghills. Rural dunghills are going to have lots more animal bedding and straw and things like that. So urban dunghills will have a bit of that if people have backyard pigs, which loads of people had, and backyard chickens. So we're talking pig manure, chicken manure, some basic animal bedding, gorse that had been set fire to, so gorse remnants and wet gorse that might not be burnable on fire, old cinders, muck from the house, waste food, Although people were really good at reusing a lot of the food. So 
the sort of things we might put in our compost buckets at the moment. And also just various other bits and bobs. There are quite a lot of stories in the Old Bailey about things that were buried in dunghills or lost in dunghills. So, I don't know, all sorts of items could appear in a dunghill. Old bits of cabbage stalks and nasty stuff that you couldn't eat. And often they caused problems because they sucked in a lot of water when it rained. And if you put your dunghill up against your neighbour's wall, you're going to cause rising damp on the other side of the wall. So that's when neighbours would fall out if they had these big lolling dunghills that were lolling against walls and causing constructional damage and damp and smell and flies as well. So it kind of depends on the season, how disgusting the dunghills would have been. Now, they were supposed to be taken away by scavengers every so often but they weren't always and sometimes people could sort of see a value in their dunghill and you could sell it on if you lived near enough agricultural land that you could sell to spread it on. Was there any form of water-based sanitation any sewers or ditches at the time and and was it effective if so? That ditches and sewers and well sewers There was a complicated sort of early form of sewerage using sort of wooden pipes and things like that. I I don't think it was going to be very effective. By the end of our period, people are putting down pipes on their buildings. So that's taking away some water runoff from houses. But still a lot of the, the movement of the materials from the streets were through kennels, which are very rudimentary, basic drainage down the centres of streets, and also ditches that are quite old. It's a medieval thing. In the medieval period, they were quite a lot better at thinking about water circulation and moving things around. And that's because the cities weren't so overcrowded. So once we get overcrowded populations, it's just quite hard to keep on top of all the nasty stuff that comes out of humans, basically. And so you get some unpleasant ditches like um, Houndsditch, for example, that it's known for having dead dogs in it. And that's why it's called Houndsditch. So there are all sorts of places that were known to be main, well, let's call them fly tipping ditches where people would just chuck a load of stuff because, I mean, largely because they were in areas where nobody important lived. So we're talking about pollution. But yeah, so rudimentary I wouldn't go as far as to call it sewerage systems, but rudimentary systems are developing. But there are still the remnants of medieval, in some ways, better systems. But they're completely overwhelmed as we get through the early modern period and increase the overcrowding. And in another attempt to address stereotypes, I must ask about privy waste or human waste and what happened to it. People often have an image, at least from the sort of late medieval period, of chamber pots being emptied out of windows. Is that in any way accurate? Oh, of course, chamber pots were emptied out of windows, but there were rules against that. So I don't think it was a common occurrence. And I think there are enough cases to suggest that people were really quite annoyed when it happened. So a lot of the waste went into cesspits, And often these cesspits are shared. Now, uh, Pepys writes a really interesting piece about, I think it was the 20th of October, 1660. He describes going into his cellar to see what damage a neighbour has done by blocking up a window. And while he's there, he sort of looks at his feet and realises, in his words, he's standing in a load of turds. And this is quite a nice explanation about how these cesspits worked. So you'd often have a cesspit in the lower parts of the house that were shared with neighbours. And they would be kind of built in a way that would filter the wet part out, but keep 
the more solid part in. And then the solid part was dug out by, and this is the worst job, the worst job possible, by the night soil men. And the night soil men worked at night and they would dig out a lot of muck from the cesspits. They'd often have to rebuild parts of them because they would fall apart in the pulling them apart. And there was this sort of constant process of filling the cesspit up and emptying it. And that's when I often think about the smells of human life. Sort of having something like that in your basement. And there was more a sense as we get through the Georgian period that people wanted to take that further out of their houses which is why we get, by the Victorian period, much more the sense of an outdoor privy, a shared outdoor privy. But for a while, people like to keep that a bit more inside. But then, again, overcrowding causes problems and it must become pretty disgusting. It feels pretty disgusting even when one of the cats uses the litter <laughs> and doesn't cover it up properly. So you can imagine having a cesspit at the bottom of your house would really smell. And particularly with Peeps, you know, his neighbour's not looking after it, so it's leaking into the shed area. And uh, the, the exposure to some neighbour's private bodily things would be a very big difference between the now and the then. But I wonder if people just got a better stomach for that sort of thing. So in Hubbub, I consider body acclimatisation and how people just get used to the situations they're in. So they would only notice it when it was pretty extreme and on the whole just got on with stuff. I think that's true. I mean, I certainly feel that since owning pets and a child, I have become much more constantly affronted by human <laughs> and animal waste and you just kind of get used to it in a way that when I was single and urban it wouldn't even occur to me that the sort of things I have to do on a daily basis you know so I do think one gets used to it yeah you just muck in yes, yes. <laughs> now I was fascinated to learn that England's prevailing westerly winds carry smells east and so the west end of towns and cities became more expensive to live in because of that and other areas were infamous for their noxious air. Can you tell me a bit more about these locations and the things that were causing the smells and the stench? Of course we've touched on some of them but some more please. I got really fascinated by this idea of zoning that was very much an east-west thing and I kept thinking, I'm going to come across cities it doesn't work in. And of course, there are a few because topographically they can't develop in particular ways. But on the whole, the East is bad and the West is good. And it's because of water flow. It's because of the winds. It's because of various things like that. But it's also because once you set up a bad area that seemed to be acceptable to put pollution into, more pollution follows it. So Bermondsey is a lovely focus. So South London, Bermondsey, there's lots of tanning mills. Um, so they use the oak to tan that's in Surrey, just beneath, and they take it upwards and they put it in the Neckinger sort of streams there and they make tanning pits to tan leather. So leather is tanned with a variety of nasty things. It's seeped in urine. And it's rubbed with pure, and pure is white dog poo, essentially. So we've got lots of these trades going down in Bermondsey, down Long Row, for example. So Bermondsey, Whitechapel, Shoreditch, areas like that become zoned as sort of areas of pollution. 
Now, once you are a polluted area, you find that nobody who lives there will set up anything called a restrictive lease. And that means, and we get loads of those in the West, that means you can or can't do a particular job there, or you can or can't set up a particular industry. So the West starts off in a better position and maintains its position as being more desirable through restrictive leases, through legal cases, and through this sort of sense of zoning that means that, ah, oh, well, you may as well put a bad development, a bad factory, a tallow chandlery, a pit, a tan pit, you may as well put it there in the bad area because it's nasty already anyway, it won't upset anybody. Then when you get through to the 18th century, they do something quite neat, the people in charge. They start saying, well, the poor people, they have really blunted senses anyway. So they don't know they're being polluted because they don't have the refined senses that the rich people have. So it doesn't really matter because their bodies can't sense the pollution that the rich people could because they've refined their senses and they have fine senses. So it's actually okay that in the bad areas, the poor people live and in the nice clean smelling areas with big squares and gardens that it smells fine because that's where all the people who can perceive these things live. So it does develop into almost like philosophy, a medical philosophy by the time we get to the 18th century. Why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. As promised, there will be... Sex. Anne has said that Henry is not skillful in copulating with a woman <gasps> and has neither vigour nor potency. And scandal. Everybody just descends onto this crime scene and it's being pulled apart by members of the public sort of as quickly as they can excavate the bodies. And moments which shaped society. Pointy boobs then became a thing and were still a thing into the 1950s. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. I'm breathless. I'm panting. Because I'm hiking up the Inca Trail in the footsteps of the intrepid explorer Hiram Bingham. Why? Oh, because Dan Snow's history here is going to Machu Picchu. Join me in Peru for an epic mini-series unravelling the mysteries of the Inca, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. We trace their meteoric rise to power, their domination of mountain, desert and jungle, their elaborate ritual and practices, including human sacrifices and their demise at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors. Out now on Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, not only did they have to contend with 
stench, but also noise. And I love the way that you talk about noise in your book, how one writer described London as a hideous din. Can you give us some sense of early modern noises and what you might hear during the day or at night after the 9pm curfew, for example? Yeah, I mean, noise was certainly something that was very determined by time of the day. Again, when you read the sources, some things can be quite startling. So I was reading the 1598 Laws of the Market, which is a little bit like, you know, the butchers have to keep the street clean here and the market bell rings there. It's mundane stuff. And then it suddenly said, after 9pm, you have to make sure you don't beat your wife in a way that it annoys the neighbours. And it was one of those moments of time that gave me a bit of a portal into the past. It's like, how do we get to that? How do we get to that sense of noise perception that it's so organised by time that it's focused on people being able to sleep, people getting up at particular times. And so there are, by the time you get to the very early 18th century and by the end of the late 17th century, lots of people are starting to write sort of 24 hours in London. Uh, Brown writes his 24 hours in London. Uh, Ned Ward starts talking about times of the day. Ned Ward was this great tavern keeper who writes sort of really rough and ready accounts of London. And they describe sort of ticking through the days. Now, they're pushing all the sounds that you might hear all together. So you have to take their words with a little pinch of salt. But they give you the possibilities. So if you're in some areas where there are lots of coopers or metalsmiths, then you're going to have, in the working day, a lot of work noises. So nobody wants to live near a cooper because it's really noisy. Likewise, coppersmiths. So coppersmiths getting more popular by the end of the early modern period. The sound of banging copper was apparently much worse on the ears because it was a kind of higher sound than other metals. So the sounds of work, the sounds of animals on the streets... The sounds of people selling things on the streets, so milkmaids, asparagus sellers, people offering services like knife grinding and tinkering, would be walking through the streets, and particularly after the market time, when they could buy up the waste of the market, and sort of shouting over each other to get custom. And then it's all beautifully displayed in um, the image that was used on the first copy of the first version of Hubbub in a William Hogarth image called The Enraged Musician. And so the musician can't work because the sounds of London are just so noisy. The bells are going to ring. The pewterer is going to be at his work. There are children making sounds. Someone's banging a drum. And I think that's what we'd notice in some ways more than the smell if we went back in time. I think we'd be totally bombarded with sounds. And so when I was doing my PhD, one of my supervisors said to me, you want to go somewhere really noisy and like really like in the middle of a market in Istanbul or somewhere in Morocco or somewhere that it's really going to upset your senses to try and understand it. And I wasn't able to at the time. And I often thought since that she was onto something. It's that sense of being completely bombarded with unusual sounds that sort of mingle together in a way you can't really make sense of them and this is why people start building their houses in different ways to try and like shield themselves from these sounds and try and put libraries in the middle of buildings and just try to get away from this all-encompassing daytime sound after 9 p.m 
sounds become more noticeable if they're alerts or if they're sort of sudden or an outcry. But before then, I don't think you'd really hear anybody in the streets. There's also traffic. So quite a lot of um, wheeled traffic on cobbles, making a huge racket, particularly at market time. So yeah, I think we'd notice the noise instantly in our sort of going back in time experiment. Whenever I'm filming, we always have to stop if somebody pulls one of those wheeled suitcases over the pavement nearby. <laughs> so I can imagine the cumulative effect of lots of wheels being pulled over cobbles being in itself hugely noisy. I gather that for some people, noise was so troublesome that they sought legal redress. The tolling of bells for plague victims became so incessant during epidemics that People tried to halt it. Were the laws that one could use to stop noise, were any petitioners successful? So the laws that you could use to stop noise are really complicated because nuisance laws are usually about damage. So they can be used in an interesting way, but they're usually circumvented in the early modern period because the noise nuisance laws, they can't really work out what it means to create a damage an aural damage. So often people come to private arrangements to silence bells at particular times because they say it's just too upsetting for ill people. The other problem with nuisances is they're private. They're usually private nuisances. And so a private nuisance, you can arrange to have it stopped and then if it carries again, there's more damage, so they pay again. But how would you work that into a noise nuisance case? So I kept trying to find cases of noise nuisances being dealt with by people like the equivalent of the London nuisance assizes and the viewers, the London viewers. But everything they're looking at is very much more focused on visual things and anything that might actually destroy structures and that sort of thing. So what I also found was that people start manipulating the laws. So they manipulate laws like the vagrancy laws. And I got really interested in how knife grinders and tinkers, now this is two of the noisiest trades, how the vagrancy laws were used against them because they were always hauled up as being vagrants, even though they were working as a tinker or they have a knife grinder's wheel. The law becomes manipulated to keep their sounds away from the richer people who are maybe not using their services, maybe just being annoyed by them. So I did detect a sort of legal manipulation rather than a straight, here's the law, And, you know, how can it work? Because there's no decibel meter reader. It's, you know, his word against her word. And so, yeah, the legal situation is really quite fudgy. And I think people work around it. Whenever you get a fudgy law, people try and work around it. I guess that's the thing is noise is so subjective, isn't it? What affects one person doesn't affect another. One thing that had never occurred to me before was that the fire of 1666 had a massive effect in terms of noise. Um, Can you outline for me that short-term consequence, but also the sort of long-term consequence of that? Yeah, so short-term, people hadn't ever experienced dead streets in this way, a silence of... It's sort of the result of the double calamity of 1665 to 1666. It totally changed the way that people experienced the soundscape, the urban soundscape. And so what I noticed was that they became more sensitive to noises afterwards. So this is where you start getting a development of a sort of, once they kind of got used to a silence 
and they got used to a sort of deadness, a lack of busyness. They quite liked what they encountered. They liked the silence at this point. It created a jolt in people's acclimatisation. So then when life starts getting up again, you get construction again around the New Exchange, for example, around various parts of London, you get more complaints about builders and about how everyday life is just super noisy. I hadn't really factored this in before, but I kept thinking, why are all the cases that I'm looking at, why are they all from the 1670s and the 1680s? And what is it that's happening in London particularly? There is a possibility you could look at parts of Oxford after major fires there as well, but I was focused very much on London. It did seem as though it jolted their sensitivity. And so a little bit of time where sounds were a bit different and the world just sounded strange. And, you know, we felt that in lockdown, this sense in lockdown that everything was quiet and therefore if you heard anything, you were super hypersensitive about it. So I was reminded of all of that over the lockdown period where we changed our perception of so many things in a sensory way that's jolting. Yes, that's really interesting. Now, given you've thought about this as a sort of total effect, if you can judge quality of life by how much or how little you are exposed to hubbub, in this period, what did you come to regard as the kind of biggest determinant of quality of life? Is it simply how wealthy you are or is it more complex than that? It's not as simple as just wealthy. It is about what you're willing to tolerate or able to tolerate I've started thinking recently about things like the autistic spectrum and hypersensitivity. I think we have a similar sense of hypersensitivity in the early modern period. It was never diagnosed, it was never understood in the same way. But I think the people who were most affected by the hubbub were the hypersensitive. And so whether rich or poor, whatever circumstances they were thrown into, some people just couldn't get beyond the sort of bombardment, the sense of bombardment. And so I don't think it is as simple as rich and poor. I mean, obviously, to do with pollution, filth and smoke pollution would have affected people fairly equally. But industrial pollution areas like Shoreditch, Whitechapel, Bermondsey would have been pretty unpleasant. I don't know if people would have dwelt on that on a daily basis. I think it's sort of like what you're born into. You get a sense of being normal. Some people who would have come in from the countryside would have noticed the urban sound, smells, senses, busyness much more than other people. But I don't know. I don't get a sense of it being to do with status necessarily. And some rich people still try to stay in the city, whereas others shun the city for the suburbs as soon as they can. But they seem to be the grouchier people who are sort of just affected by things and preoccupied by things. So I can't give a neat answer, I guess, because I'm still sort of battling this idea. And you distinguish between indoor and outdoor people in this book as well as a kind of key determinant of experience. Can you explain that? Yeah, so people whose indoors were nice, so there you are talking about the richer people, are starting to try to get more of a sense of control over the internal privacy over the internal conditions of their houses. So this is where you get a movement of positioning of servants' staircases, for example, in richer houses, to separate, to give a sense of separation indoors. And then going back to that Hogarth image from the cover, the original cover of the book, 
this sense that anything you might want to do creatively indoors might be damaged by the filth, the noise and the stench of the exterior. So people are starting to focus more on glazing, windows, moving buildings, moving the construction of buildings so that quiet spaces are hidden away in the middle of the properties and not at the edges. Studies, for example, and libraries were sort of positioned in a way that people would be less bothered by the outside people. And then lots of people who live in really horrible properties, and as we go through the overcrowding of the 17th century, properties would have got pretty crowded, pretty difficult to live in, then I can't help thinking that their experience would have been better outside than inside. So they spend a lot of their time living outside. And that's when we get to this manipulation of vagrancy laws, etc., clash of lifestyles. Because the people who spend a lot of time in more pleasant interiors start being bothered by things like the potato market for the people who live outside and the sounds of the knife grinding and the sounds of the tinkers. And it seems to be coming to a head around the 1690s and into the 1700s. This sort of sense of a total difference between the people who live most of their lives outside and the people who want more privacy, more segregation and more sort of control inside. So sort of two points I want to respond to there. One is in terms of thinking about kind of management of all of all of these things, noise and stench and filth and so on and so forth. Today, of course, we look to our local councils a lot to maintain public areas and to, you know, to reduce the number of insults to our senses. Did local councils at this time play a role in doing that? To some degree. And people often didn't know who to complain to. Like we don't often know now, is it the local council, is it the city council, is it the more wider council? Now, Manchester is interesting to focus on at this period because it has a leet court. It's an old manorial control in Manchester. So we can kind of see it as a council, but it's not quite the same. And if you look at the records for Manchester at the time, they have quite a lot of control over things like how the market is looking and functioning, whether people are keeping their paving clean and flat and regulated without trip hazards and puddles and things like that. They're not so focused on noise. Noises sometimes come up. They're focused on things like nasty food being sold in markets. Sometimes they can focus on bad trades like tallow chandling, that sort of thing. Now, then if we look at somewhere like London, everywhere split into parishes and we get uh, the ward moat inquiries that are a regular but not very frequent accounts of people's problems within a particular ward. And so they would bring problems to this ward moat. And so they're not like an official council system. And often some of these various ways of manipulating, moderating, intervening with these people falling out over sensory problems. Sometimes the jurisdictions are kind of overlapping in a fluid way that people don't really understand. A lot of the legal discussions at the time is, are we able to do anything about this? Is this our area? I'm not sure. Because sensory nuisances kind of slip between lots of people's expertise in that area of control. But I did look a lot of ward moat inquiries and inquests, and I looked at a lot of leak court records, And so that's the nearest you get to to a sense of council control at the time. And do you think or did you come across evidence that this 
sense of assault on the senses improves during the course of the early modern era? It changes. It definitely changes. I don't know if I see a direct improvement. I think some people would perceive an improvement. We're going back, though, to living in particular areas. If you're living in the west of London, yeah, of course. (laughs) It gets ever, ever better because of restrictive leases, because of all sorts of legal controls. And because of improvement acts by the time you get into the 18th century, you would expect them to be focused on things like dirt and smells and to their private acts of parliament or sort of urban acts of parliament. You'd expect them to focus on smells and smoky trades and other things like that, but they don't really. They start focusing instead on aesthetics. What does the city look like? And they start focusing on circulation. How does the city flow? Can people get through it? And what essentially is happening is this sense of where there's muck, there's brass. So let's put pollution in a particular place. And I think pollution is getting worse in places like Bermondsey. It's getting worse to live in those areas. And in high prestigious and high sort of status areas of cities, central parts, western parts, where there's this focus on the aesthetics and this focus on circulation, I think it would be easier to manoeuvre through a city without being so encumbered by the dirt, the stench, the smoke. But in other pockets of London and other pockets of other cities, I think it will be getting worse. So I actually think the gulf is developing during the early modern period. And you've mentioned briefly the experience of those living in rural areas But given that you're focusing mostly in your work on urban centres, do you think that those who lived in the countryside would have had a radically different experience of filth and noise and stench? Or would there be overlaps? I think there'd be overlaps. I think the fact that you live in a city at the time means that you, in some ways, have more access to things that will ameliorate these situations. So you have more access to cleaning materials, to products, to clothing, to secondhand clothing that you might be able to have a more comfortable experience with. I sort of ended by thinking, actually, lots of people say, oh, you know, life in the city, it's difficult, it's dirty, it's messy, it's noisy, it's chaotic, it's busy, but it's better than being in the countryside. Now, that's very much an urban interpretation, but I didn't turn it round very much. I always got this sense that, yeah, but this is where things are happening. This is where life is. This is where you can actually see a different way through your experience. So I still got the impression that the city was where everything was at and it would have been easier for a lot of the time, but harder for very intense periods of time. Whereas the countryside, because of the availability of materials and some incredibly difficult lives, I just get the impression that I'd rather be in a city, even though it was dirty, filthy, noisy and busy. You're very frank about the fact that the nature of the historical record means that the personal experiences in the book tend to come from those who were literate, who were rich, often mostly men, who are, of course, a minority and possibly less tolerant than other people in society might have been. Do you think there is scope from recovering more information from those people you referred to as the nobodies. Can we get at their century experiences, do you think, at some point? I think we can, but in a way that would always be quite mediated. So I think it's about making guesses. 
So I have this sort of cast of inputs, I call them, rather than experts. So they're people who, they weren't experts in what they were looking at. They just happened to come across information. So the diarists, key of whom would be Samuel Pepys, um, but also Robert Hooke, who I got really interested in because he wrote a really creepy diary. And then Edmund Harold, a wig maker who wrote a diary in Manchester from 1712 to 1715. Now, once you get to the 18th century, yeah, I think that the nobody's experiences are much more capturable. So certainly Edmund Harold's diary takes us nearer to them. I think there could be a way you could extrapolate reactions and experiences and interactions and take them back. But, you know, it's just not the academic historical model, is it? Sort of would take you into the realms of quite interesting historical fiction writing. It's always something that I sort of feel a little bit like um, if I don't have the direct testimony and if I don't have the direct source, it would feel just too much like guesswork. So it's about making suggestions and possibilities rather than inferences. But I think it would be hard. I mean, one thing that annoyed me when I was writing Hubbub is how few of my inputs were women. So I did put in the experiences of Mary Chandler and Margaret Cavendish, but they're both quite unusual women. So Mary Chandler in Bath and Margaret Cavendish, mostly thinking about a bigger urban experience. And so I did feel as well, other women's experiences here, Miss? They're doing often a lot of the washing and the hard, heavy work of maintaining a house. They're doing a lot of the handling human waste and waste materials. And you get hints in things like old Bailey records and stuff like that, but they really are just snippets and clues and little tiny fragments of experience rather than full detailed descriptions. Yes, and for a good few decades of each of their lives, they're having to deal with a different type of waste as well. As we come to a conclusion, I just want question I'm intrigued to ask you. This is a really visceral piece of writing and it, and it must have felt equally visceral researching it. Are there any particular experiences or things that you learn that stay with you long after having written the book? Yeah, various moments of time. I mean, there are some horrific stories about things found in cesspits that I found it hard to read about those things. I found it difficult to use Old Bailey records to look at car accidents, some children killed in car accidents. And those sorts of stories, they sort of shudder you at the time while you're looking at them. And then a few experiences I haven't been able to let go of, and they're in some ways more mundane and everyday. So Lewis Smart, who had a piggery in 1733 on London's Tottenham Court Road, and he apparently had hundreds of pigs there. I've never been able to shake off this idea of like right there in London's Tottenham Court Road, having this massive piggery that causes problems to all the neighbours, tarnishes their silver, makes the servants leave, makes them all ill. It always made me think and feel about ideas at the time to do with health and miasma and proximity and just the descriptions of this establishment and the way that the pig filth can dirty linen in a half an hour on the line. The way it was written up just got to me in a way that I wasn't expecting it to and kind of made me feel I was there on Tottenham Court Road at the time, trying to work out how I would manage being a neighbour to Lewis Smart. So stories like that, I suppose, were the ones that, that kind of stayed with me. 
Well, I shall remember Lewis Smart every time I go down Tottenham Court Road from now on. <laughs> I often think of that great sort of accident, the beer accident that happened on Tottenham Court Road, but now I have the pigs too. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been, uh, I mean, delight might be quite the wrong word for what we've been talking about, but I've certainly enjoyed it. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, and please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. History is full of extraordinary people. The Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.